Welcome to the Crossing Church Podcast. This week we conclude our series, Can We Talk About This?, with a message titled, A Manifesto for Christianity. We hope you enjoy this weekend's message. Hello, hello, welcome to the Crossing Church. Can you keep that applause going as we welcome our South Shore campus with Pastor Hector, Plant City campus with Pastor Michael, and everyone watching online and around the world. We're so glad you joined us today. We're so glad you're here at our Tampa campus as well. As always, it's an honor and a privilege to teach on this platform, and I thank our lead pastors, Pastor Greg, Pastor Tamer, for this opportunity and for their leading of this church. Can you show them your appreciation as well? We love you. Thank you so much. Well, today we're concluding our series called Can We Talk About This? And we've talked about cancel culture. We've talked about can people really change their minds? And so today I'd like to end with something a little different. It's a little different for me to teach something like this, and maybe it'll be different for you. But today I want to do what's called a manifesto. A manifesto, if you've not heard that word before, it's like a public declaration, a pronouncement, or a proclamation. And so today I want to give my personal manifesto answering this question, why I am a Christian. Why I am a Christian. And as I go through some of the material today, I hope that you would begin to think about how you would answer this question. What would you write as your public declaration or your proclamation why you are a Christian today? You know, as we've addressed the hot topics in this series, it seems with passing of time that just saying you are a Christian is a hot topic enough on its own. Even saying that I am a Christian could be controversial. Christianity, the word, can be synonymous today with things like hate and bigotry and racism and nationalism and phobias of various kinds and many other negative terms. There is an exodus from Christianity, especially from a younger generation. Maybe you've heard the terms deconstruction, as young people deconstruct their faith and leave the church. There's another term called exvangelical. You'll see it on social media where someone says they are leaving the evangelical church. They're an exvangelical. And those who still claim to be Christians will be dismissed as just following their parents' religion. Well, today I'd like to set the record straight. Because Christianity is none of the words that I said a moment ago. Actually, despite the blemishes that have happened on Christianity throughout history, and even today, whether it's through moral failure or the followers of Christianity slandering the name of Jesus, I stand before you proclaiming that Christianity is still the most reasonable, historically based, factually confirmed, and logical worldview one can hold. Amen. Christianity is still the most reasonable, historically based, factually confirmed, and logical worldview one can hold. And that's what I hope to explain today. You know, it's interesting that after Jesus rose from the dead, the gospel spread throughout the world very quickly, and it was by the disciples and apostles giving their manifesto of Christianity, why they knew Jesus Christ, how they came to know him. And so I'd like to read one of those accounts. If you would turn in your Bibles, turn to the Bible app on your devices, to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. What's amazing is Acts chapter 2, at the beginning of the chapter, the Holy Spirit falls on the disciples. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're empowered. And then they go out to preach the gospel. But in that moment, in Acts chapter 2, after they're filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter, the disciple and apostle, stands on the balcony of the upper room where they just received the Holy Spirit and proclaims a manifesto for Christianity. 
And people come to know Jesus even then. So Acts chapter 2, starting with verse 22, and it says this. This is Peter speaking to the crowd in that moment. Men of Israel, listen to these words. This Jesus the Nazarene was a man pointed out to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. But God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And then we jump down to verse 36. When they heard this, the crowd came under deep conviction and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what must we do? That should be the response when we share the gospel to those who are seeking. As we move in the power of the Holy Spirit, people should be moved to say, Now what do we do? And what does Peter say? Repent. Be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. I believe that's also for today. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to Christianity. So if you're taking notes, the title for today's message is this, A Manifesto for Christianity. A Manifesto for Christianity. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your presence here throughout our campuses with those online. I pray you speak to us. Speak through me today. Help me to speak clearly and teach your truth effectively. We also pray for the families of Uvalde, Texas, the tragedy that occurred there. God, I pray that you intervene, both in the natural and in the spirit, that this would not happen again, and that you would be with those families, move in our country, in our nation, and on your people, and let your people hear your voice today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In a few moments... After we go through these steps, I'll read my personal manifesto, why I'm a Christian. But I want to go through how you can begin to build yours, how you build your worldview, how you come to know what is true and what is right. So we have five steps, five steps to building your world, worldview. Step number one, what is truth? What is truth? For some of you, that may feel like a silly place to start. I mean, of course, we know what's true and what's not. But what's interesting is that more and more culture is trying to press against the very idea that something can be true. Because when something is true, it means other things are false. Truth, by definition, is exclusive. If something is true, something else is false. This question, what is truth, has been around for a long time. Even Pontius Pilate asked Jesus this very question. In John 18, verse 37, Jesus stands before Pilate, and Pilate says, you're a king then? You say that I'm a king, Jesus replied, I was born for this, and I have come into this world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate asks him, what is truth? Pilate didn't stick around for the answer, unfortunately. 
Now, the fancy words for this, if you're talking about truth, is ontology and epistemology. Now, we have a sign language interpreter here at the Tampa campus. I want to know how she did this. What's ontology? How'd you do that? Okay, okay, very good. Yeah, okay, it's, I'm sorry. <laughs> She's killing it over here. You can give her a round of applause. That's awesome. I got a few more big words today, so I apologize for that as well. But ontology is concerned with the idea of truth, the nature of reality. And epistemology is the study of knowledge, how we come to know things. You can impress your friends later today at lunch and say, we learned about ontology today. But how do we know that something is true? Truth has to, has to pass the correspondence and consistency test. If something is true, it has to correspond to reality. We need to be able to, to see and observe and test that it is true. If water really is H2O, two hydrogen, one oxygen molecules, we should be able to put it under a microscope and see it. Does that correspond to reality? Is it really H2O? And it needs to be consistent. If we test a drop of water here in the Gulf and we test it again in the Pacific, is it the same? Is it true both times? Truth needs to correspond to reality and it needs to be consistent throughout. But our world is trying to make its own definition of words. Our world and culture is trying to say truth is what you make it. I even saw a clip of a talk show the other day, and the question on the floor was, how do you define man or woman? And it's incredible, the verbal and mental gymnastics to not define these words. There is such an effort not to define words because when you define something, immediately it excludes other definitions. And our culture is trying so hard to not define and not uh, land on objective truth. But we know that words have meaning and truth has meaning. If you get a prescription from the doctor and that prescription says take two pills each day, you don't go home and assume two means 20. There's some ramifications for that. In the same way, if you pull up to an intersection and the light turns red, it's not red for you and green for the car behind you, it's red for everyone. You can't interpret a red light to mean go. There's consequences for denying the truth. There are consequences for denying the truth of the prescription, denying the truth of the streetlight, denying the truth of God. And we know two contradictory things cannot both be true at the same time. The streetlight wasn't red and green at the same time. It's one or the other. Now, I've gone through some orange lights in my time, but we won't talk about that. They're very rare, the orange lights. You don't see them very often. <laughs> Culture is trying its hardest to remove meaning from words and interpret it as they want. There's a word for this, and there's a philosophy for this. It's called postmodernism. Postmodernism is not a new idea, but postmodernism says words don't inherently have meaning. We just put meaning on things. The meaning is up to us. There's actually an entire building dedicated to this. It's the Ohio State University's Wexner Center for the Arts. The Wexner Center for the Arts, the architect claimed it was the first postmodern building. If you go inside the building, there are stairs that lead to nowhere. There's columns that serve no purpose. The architect said everything in this building is up to interpretation. You put whatever meaning you want on it. I wonder if they treated the foundation in the same way. Or instead, did they carefully measure the bounds of the foundation? Did they with care pour the concrete to make sure that it would stand the test of time? It's interesting, these ideas of making your own definition at some point end and no longer apply.
Because we know that to have a solid foundation, something must be true for everyone for all time. No matter how hard you want something to be different, what is true is true. It's as in the movie Liar, Liar, the pen is most assuredly blue. <laughs> I tried to Dr. Seuss that a little bit. The reason why that scene is funny is because he's trying so hard to say it's red, but he's unable to lie in this scene. And so he just ends up writing blue all over his face. And it's funny because we can all see what is true. It's undeniable. So step one, you need to seek truth, test truth, understand truth, care about the truth. John 8, 32 says it like this. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth is knowable, and it will set you free. So number one, truth. It is knowable. We need to seek it. Step two, for many people, we need to answer the question, God or no God? Does God even exist? For the younger generation now, the question is not, did Jesus rise from the dead or is the Bible says this? They're wondering, is God even real? Does God even exist? So the next step towards our journey in building a worldview, we must answer this question. Does God exist or does he not? There's an entire branch of Christianity called apologetics. I've spoken about it before. The study of how to defend your faith with reason and logic. And in apologetics, there are many arguments for the existence of God. Proofs, you may even say, that it is reasonable to believe God exists. There's a link in the message notes today. If you want more resources about this, wearecrossing.com slash notes. It's the message notes for today. There's a YouTube playlist there with about seven or eight videos with these. But I want to go through one, if you would allow me just for a moment. Can you put your student hat on just for a second? Can you think you're in university for just a moment? That was not encouraging. Can you do it just for a moment? <laughs> just, okay, okay, praise God. <laughs> so one of the arguments for the existence of God is called the Kalam cosmological argument. How are you doing over there? Oh, she just pointed at the screen. I like that. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> the Kalam cosmological argument. This is about the universe. And an argument is not just arguing with someone else. It's a building block argument. There's three statements in the Kalam cosmological argument. It says this, everything that begins to exist has a cause. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist is premise two, and the simple conclusion is, therefore, the universe has a cause. If the first two statements are true, the conclusion logically follows. It's undeniable. So let's look at the first two very briefly. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. This is widely accepted. The chair you're sitting on right now or the screen you're watching this service on, you know that it came from somewhere. It didn't just pop into existence. When you're eating a meal at a restaurant and your steak dinner comes, have you ever been afraid that a tiger is going to just appear and eat it out of your hand? No. We understand that things don't just pop into existence. Everything that exists has a process by which it was created. So I think it's safe to agree that everything that begins to exist has a cause. Although many times on a Sunday, it seems like Chick-fil-A's pop out of existence just to taunt you. But that's a different story. There was one experiment in 1952 performed by Stanley Miller and Harold Urey. And this experiment was trying to prove that something could come from nothing. They wanted to see if they could create amino acids spontaneously out of nothing. 
And so for over decades, 1952 to 2007, this experiment ran. And in 2007, they discovered some amino acids that seemed to come from nothing. Ironically, this was the nothing it came from, a rather elaborate experiment done by two guys. Looks a lot more than nothing. Or maybe uh, it would be more relatable, the Billy Preston song that says, nothing from nothing leaves nothing. You know nothing from nothing leaves nothing. You know what song? Just me. Okay, leave me up here. That's okay. All right. So everything that begins to exist has a cause. We don't get something from nothing. Number two, did the universe actually begin? Many ways you can tackle this question. You can look at the second law of thermodynamics. You can look at the improbability of an infinite number of past events. I'll point to you one man, Alexander Vilenkin, scientist who did multiple studies showing that the universe had a finite beginning point. It has not infinitely existed in the past. It began to exist at a set point. Even this diagram, many scientists use this and astronomers and astrophysicists to look at the age of the universe. They say there was a set point, a beginning point, and then everything came to be. This side, nothing. This side, everything. And a set point right there. And so even scientists and astrophysicists agree the universe began at a set point. So if everything that begins to exist has a cause and the universe began to exist, that means the universe has a cause. And you might ask, well, what does that have to do with God? Well, you know, what cause could possibly create the universe and everything we see today? That cause must be infinite. The cause must be outside of time and space. The cause must be immaterial. It must be extremely powerful. And it must be the first uncaused cause. That sounds familiar. Does it to you? Now, if you prefer to call this cause the infinite, timeless, spaceless, immaterial, extremely powerful, uncaused cause, go right ahead. I'm going to abbreviate it to God. And that is just one of several arguments in apologetics for the existence of God. To the original question, God or no God, I believe that the evidence is plain. We have good reasons to believe God exists. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says it like this, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that we are without excuse. If we look to the heavens and look to the stars, we are without excuse because we know they had to have come from somewhere. And so if we are at the point where we can admit that God must exist, some God must exist, now we come to step three in forming our worldview, then which God? There are many religions out there in the world. You can look to the East and find no shortage of religions there. There is Islam and Hinduism, Buddhism. How do we know which is true? How do we know which God is the true God? Can multiple be true? Maybe some of you might even have this bumper sticker already, or maybe you've seen it. It says, coexist. Don't worry, we'll get you some goo gone after service. <laughs> but here's the thing. These multiple religions are exclusive. For the Muslim to say anyone is God besides Allah is blasphemous. So to proclaim Jesus as Lord is wrong to the Muslim. For the Hindu, they believe in reincarnation, that once we die, we are reborn in another life. But Christianity says, Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. These religions are not compatible. They are not equal. 
They are not all true. And what we know of truth, it can't be contradictory. They can't all be true at the same time. As much as our world and our culture would love to say, you practice yours, I'll practice mine, and we can all be happy, they cannot all be true at the same time. So how do we know? How do we know which religion to follow? If God exists, how do we know which one is true? To that, let's move quickly to step four. We must look at the historical basis for each religion. Every religion, every worldview makes claims about the past, about reality. We have to examine them. What does each religion say about the world around us? And to look at what each religion says, we must look at their holy text or the holy scriptures of each religion. For Islam, it's the Quran, written by one man, Muhammad. For the Hindus, it's the Vedas, with unknown authors, written many years ago. But for Christianity, our sacred text is known as the Bible. And what's unique is the Bible is not just one book. The Bible is a library of books, 66 books to be exact, written by 40 different authors over a time span of 1,500 years. And only the Bible opens itself to academic and historic scrutiny to a degree that no other holy text can match. Only the Bible allows itself to do this. Only the Bible has places, names, and events that you can historically verify, that you can look at and examine and see if it is true. Another reason why we can trust the Bible is what's known as manuscripts. If you don't know what manuscripts are, a manuscript is a copy of an original work. When it comes to the Bible, we don't have the original papyruses that the gospel writers would have written on, but what we have are manuscripts, accurate and well thought out by scribes manuscripts, not thought out, just straight copied. And here's the thing about manuscripts. For most historical documents, we have to rely on manuscripts. For one other example, look at the Greek philosopher Plato. Plato, we teach at our universities, we teach about Plato in our philosophy courses, but Plato's works, the writings of Plato, there are only seven manuscripts that still exist today. The writings of Plato, only seven manuscripts exist today that you can go and look at. And the oldest manuscript that we still have existed 1,200 years after his death. Plato died 1,200 years. Then we have the first manuscript of his writings. And we find that to be historically accurate. We teach it in our universities. But what about the Bible? The New Testament has 24,633 manuscripts that still exist today that you can go see with your own eyes. Amen. And not only that... We have manuscripts from the first century when the disciples and apostles were still alive. Look at this manuscript. This still exists today. It is a manuscript of the Gospel of Mark, a manuscript that dates back to the first century. That means that this manuscript existed at the same time the disciples and apostles were still alive. They could have attested to its accuracy. And there's 24,000 and more manuscripts of the New Testament writings. This is huge. For historical accuracy and for historical basis, this shows that the Bible is unbelievably accurate to the original writings. Not to mention manuscripts, but archaeology confirms what the Bible says over and over again. Very briefly, look at just a few examples. This piece of archaeology, an inscription found in Tel Dan, Israel, speaks about the house of David, King David from the Old Testament. It confirms the writings of David. This next piece is Hezekiah's tunnel mentioned 
mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 5. You can go to Israel today and walk through Hezekiah's tunnel. There's excavations in Turkey where it was discovered the Hittites resided. You can read about the Hittites all throughout the Old Testament. And one of my favorites, this piece of archaeology, an inscription was found in Turkey that talks about a census taken by Caesar Augustus in the first century in the time of Jesus. If you know the nativity story, that should sound familiar to you. Because in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. That census that Luke chapter 2 talks about is also written in an inscription found in Turkey hundreds of years ago. Over and over again, the Bible is confirmed to be historically reliable and accurate in its events all the way through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what does that mean for you? That means the words that you read, either on the physical page of your Bible or the pixels that you scroll on your device as you read the words there, those words record true events. What you are reading is a history book of events that truly happened about the life of Jesus Christ, his death on, his, on a cross, and even his resurrection. If you've never seen this image, it looks like a rainbow, but this is actually a picture of all the cross-references in the Bible from the Old Testament, prophecies that were fulfilled in the New Testament, times when the New Testament would quote the Old Testament, and back and forth, over and over, the Bible confirms and correlates to itself. No other holy text can do this. The Bible is an incredible library of works that contain life-changing truth. And if we can trust the Bible, it means that Jesus Christ was God incarnate, walked the earth 2,000 years ago, truly died on a cross, and rose from the dead so you could be forgiven and have a relationship with God today. And so our final step, step five, the verdict. The question is, what will you do with this information? What will you do with truth? We've come through truth. Truth is knowable. Truth exists. It's non-contradictory. We have good reasons to believe that God exists, even just in the universe around us. When you look at the span of religions, Christianity stands alone in historical basis. The Bible itself is trustworthy, confirmed over and over again, and Jesus Christ truly lived and rose again. And so now, the choice is yours. What do you do with this information? I'm going to read my manifesto, what I do with this information and why I am a Christian. But for those of you who know the Lord already, something you can do, maybe even today or this week, write down your manifesto. Why do you consider yourself a Christian? You might have a very short manifesto. I experienced a miracle. Or I had an encounter with the Holy Spirit that was undeniable. Or God changed my life from drugs or whatever your past was and he miraculously transformed me. Whatever that manifesto is, I encourage you to write it down. Make it plain as the Bible says. And that will be your testimony to others who are seeking truth. Now my manifesto is a little longer than that because I went through a season where I doubted my faith. I think much like young people today, struggling to know what they believe. And so I had to go through all that information so I could know for myself that Christianity was true. And so here is why I am a Christian and why I think you should choose Christ today. The very nature of truth carries exclusivity. 
Two opposing statements cannot both be true. A person is either guilty or innocent. Either God exists or he does not. If you hold to the latter, that there is no God, no designer, no creator, then you are bound to nothing. We are but specks of dust on an insignificant planet, surrounded by the immensity of space. We are beholden to no moral code or ethical good, but what we decide. Seek pleasure, seek fame and fortune, seek only what makes you happy. For the brief moment of existence you have will be gone in an instant. But if the opposite is true, if God does exist, the ramifications are vast. I believe that the beginning of time and space, the fine-tuning of the universe for life, the argument for objective morality, all point to an all-powerful, timeless, and personal creator. We are humans with intrinsic worth. We understand there is objective right and wrong, and the improbability of life all point towards the existence of God. So what God should we follow? Which of the many world religions are right? All religions cannot simultaneously be true. If Islam is true, claiming another god beside Allah is blasphemous, including Jesus. If Hinduism is true, we die only to live again. If Christianity is true, Jesus claims no one comes to God except through me, meaning every other religion is false. To decide, we must look at the veracity of each religion, their sacred texts, historical accuracy, and seek truth with as little bias as possible. Begin this process, and you will see no other holy book makes the number of prophetic claims that come to pass. No other teaching is based on grace apart from works. No other religious figure died for his followers and then rose from the dead, none other than Jesus Christ. No collection of works is so historically accurate, archaeologically confirmed, and divinely inspired as the Bible. No document is as validated by outside sources as the Bible. There is no collection of words as consistent written across 1,500 years by 40 authors in 66 books as the Bible. The Bible is authoritative and has stood the test of time. If we are to believe the Bible is true and accurate, that Christianity stands alone among world religions, that the person of Jesus really lived, died, and rose from the dead, then what does that mean for us? It means we cannot hide under the guise that we exist by accident. We cannot pretend to dictate morality by popular vote. There is only one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. The world protests the idea of only one way, reasoning that no one should be sentenced to eternal pain. Yet instead of taking issue with a single path, let us rejoice that there is at least a path, that the way is knowable, and most astonishingly of all, the omnipotent creator seeks after us. I'm not asking you to lay aside skepticism or doubt. You can even embrace it, but don't embrace with complacency. Don't be skeptic with complacency. Let your questioning drive you to follow the evidence where it leads. Read the science, challenge belief, gather facts from all sides, and I pray you reach a confidence in knowing that truth exists and his name is Jesus Christ. That is why I am a Christian. And maybe you have heard something today and you realize it's time for you to bend the knee and serve this King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And you might be asking, as the crowd did in front of Peter, what do we do now? Romans 10.9 says it like this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so we're going to do that right now. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes, we're going to pray a simple prayer all together. Everyone is going to pray it across our campuses and online, but I want you 
Those of you who are giving your life to Christ now, I want you to pray it from the bottom of your hearts. Everyone says together, Dear Jesus, forgive me. I proclaim you as Lord. You are my Savior. Teach me to follow you the rest of my life. In Jesus' name. We hope you enjoyed that message from Pastor Stephen Robles. Don't forget you can watch all of our messages on demand on our YouTube channel. Subscribe at youtube.com slash crossingchurch. We hope to worship with you in person this weekend. For all times and locations, visit wearecrossing.com.